Naomi Shaven, and I'm filling in on Recap for Dan today. Today is Tuesday, June 15th. California is opening back up. Biden is cracking down on domestic terrorism. And we're focused on America's mental health. Our mental health care system had flaws before the pandemic. First, most care is self-sought in the sense that if someone is struggling with mental illness or despair, they would typically have to find the resources themselves. And they'd often have to pay out of pocket for them, as our healthcare system doesn't offer meaningful mental health care coverage, even under some of the most robust insurance plans. The pandemic revealed the brokenness of a lot of American systems. And it didn't just cast light on structural problems in our mental health care system. It exacerbated them. During the pandemic, demand for mental health services skyrocketed. The American Psychological Association found that six months into the pandemic, therapists reported seeing an increase in patients with anxiety disorders and depressive disorders. Therapists have told reporters again and again over the months that they are seeing so much demand they can't keep up. That means there are a lot of people seeking care who cannot get it. Some of that strain on the system is visible in emergency rooms. One study found that instances of emergencies related to mental health conditions, overdoses, and abuse were higher in March through October of 2020 compared to the year before. The supply problem of needing more mental health professionals and services is one that has to be solved long-term. It takes time to train new therapists and psychiatrists and other care providers. But in the short term, tech companies have cropped up trying to help fill this gap. Some offer chatbots and other tech-enabled services. Some offer platforms for teletherapy. Others still offer a hybrid model, which allows providers to monitor patients with tech and intervene when needed. To understand how mental health care tech is evolving and how to improve mental health care as the pandemic comes under control and we turn our attention to its toll, I speak with Chris Malaro, CEO of Neuroflow, an app-based mental health care tech company. That's in a moment. I do want to note, this episode mentions depression and suicide. If you or someone you know needs help today, you can find help at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. It's free and available 24-7. 1-800-273-8255. We'll be back after this. I'm joined now by Chris Malaro, the CEO and co-founder of Neuroflow. Chris, I'm wondering if you could start by telling us how you got into the mental health care space and if there was a specific problem you observed or wanted to solve that drew you in. Thank you for having me today, Naomi. So I, you know, I come from mental health as from the patient lens of things. Um, I don't have a healthcare background, but I, before starting Neuroflow, I was in the military for a number of years. And in that world, obviously, there's a lot of stress. There's a lot of risk for PTSD and depression and so forth, especially when coming back from deployment. To make a long story short, we had a number of soldiers that had sleep issues. I mean, myself included. When you're on for 12 months and it's just go, 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 and then you come back home, that transition can be really challenging. I had a soldier that screened positively for depression. He was referred to the appropriate resources, which is really great news, right? Because if we can identify the issue, then we can get them the support. And, you know, three months goes by and um, 
he, we ended up losing him to his battle with depression and PTSD. And, you know, we did a whole investigation of what happened. And it turned out that he didn't once go to the therapist that he was referred to. Not once did he go fill his antidepressant and never did anyone follow up to say, hey, how are you doing? And so there was a significant gap in care. He wasn't getting the support that he needed and we didn't know the better. And so that is my personal passion for wanting to to get into mental health care so that other other folks don't don't struggle. Thank you for sharing about your friend. I'm so sorry to hear that. I'm wondering, as you thought about what happened to him and wanting to solve that problem, why did tech seem like the right way to go about it? I think tech is part of the solution. And maybe as the a technology CEO, I should say tech is the silver bullet and the only part of the solution. But I, I just I don't think that's the case, especially in mental health care. We have a ton of evidence-based protocols that work really well. There's countless humans that are well-trained professionals and experts in being assistants to this, whether they're psychiatrists helping with medications or therapists and licensed clinical social workers and so forth. The challenge is those resources are only as good if they're available and if people access them. We're not going to solve mental health care by hiring more mental health professionals. You know, that's a finite solution, still has gaps in availability and so forth. You're also not going to solve it just by having chatbots and technology automating therapy. But if you can do both that augment each other, that's where we see special things happening. And for us, I think technology is a part of the solution that should enhance the way the humans are engaged with. So technology plus people is our belief. And can you actually just take a minute and explain Neuroflow to our listeners and how it kind of com combines the human and the tech aspects? Today, Neuroflow supports over 400,000 people on the app, but they're augmented throughout therapy and throughout speaking with coaches and that sort of thing. For the longest time, it was always, I'm going to go to my primary care provider to get my physical health done, my wellness check, and then I'm going to go somewhere completely different space. They don't know each other. They're on different insurance plans to get my mental health care. We're finally recognizing that one affects the other. If someone has diabetes and they also have depression and they don't get the depression treated they're going to have worse outcomes on the diabetes side of things and vice versa. We work with physicians to measure mental health in first and foremost and identify issues to them. Sometimes a self-service app is good enough. Sometimes they need to see a psychiatrist or a therapist. And rather than just writing that referral and leaving the doctor's office, and then hopefully they go engage in that care. And we know that most people won't engage in that care. We then follow that patient throughout their journey, helping to remotely monitor them. And what we do is we have artificial intelligence algorithms that flag high-risk patient accounts that then give appropriate warning and notice to the nursing staff and to the care management staff so they could say, oh, we probably want to reach out to her. We weren't due for a reach out for another three months, but she's showing trends that we need to reach out to her now before she shows up into the ER or worse ends in a, you know, a tragic outcome. What sort of trends were you seeing over the last 18 months that um, were either an acceleration or a departure from what we had seen before the pandemic? If there was ever a silver lining to a 18 month pandemic, it was the fact that as a society, as a collective, we're acknowledging and 
and owning the fact that mental health is is a serious issue that needs to be taken care of. And we feel more comfortable talking about it. We feel more comfortable saying, you know what? Yeah, I was pretty depressed over the last 12 months and acknowledging that so that I can get the help that I need. That's, I think, a huge step forward and really just really promising. Part of the challenge that's created now is access and a demand and supply issue. You know, wait times are longer than ever. People also don't necessarily know where to go. There's brick and mortar options. There's these telehealth options. There's these chat options. There's a a slew of options out there. Just having more out there doesn't make it more accessible. The other problem is telehealth is still a finite resource, right? If you're synchronously talking to someone, whether it's over video or phone, there's limited time in the day. And this is where we believe that asynchronous communication can come into play, that a therapist that normally could only treat, say, 10 people a day could now reach thousands of people a day. And using data can say, these are the top 10 that I need to reach out to immediately. And then the other 1,100 people or so that are on the platform, I could continue to keep tabs on them, give them support through these asynchronous communications. And that has has been a trend that I think wasn't status quo before COVID. And now post-COVID, um, we're seeing more and more people comfortable with that. Mental health care um, has traditionally also had this sort of metrics problem. Like, how do you really measure that somebody is getting better, right? You can't monitor their blood pressure. I'm curious, do you think that there is a role for tech in creating metrics and doing so without gamifying it and getting patients to want to give, quote unquote, the right answers? It's funny you say gamify because we we try to gamify mental health, but we have a, a point system in our app that rewards patients for going in and engaging and doing their activities, not for giving the quote-unquote right answer. They don't get points for improving. They get points for working to improve themselves. From a measurement standpoint, the good news is there's a ton of validated screening and evidence-based measurement tools. So there's a it's called the PHQ or the Patient Health Questionnaire 9, which is validated for depression. There's a similar one for anxiety and PTSD. And these are just self-reported questions that you would answer. And there's a lot of studies that show the validity of those. The challenge is that they're not perfect. And you also have to get somebody to answer these nine questions on a regular basis, which is, I have trouble just responding to emails, let alone like filling out those questionnaires. And so where technology can come and augment those, I I wouldn't say replace them at this point, but there's a bunch of different data points that you can collect. So we tie in with wearable devices so we can measure heart rate and steps and exercise level, sleep quality. We run natural language processing algorithms for journal entries. So if someone is journaling in the app, we can gather sentiment from that. All of those variables are in addition to the validated screenings tools that can give someone a better picture with how their mental health is doing. And and you can get a much, much clearer picture for who Naomi is, for who Chris is, and what the best care options for them are, which is which is really exciting. I'm curious, as we do see the pandemic start to abate and people go back to normal life, it seems like there's an entire spectrum of things that people are dealing with. Some of those are things that we typically think of as mental health challenges like anxiety or depression, but there's also a tremendous amount of grief in our country right now. There's also all kinds of social anxiety. What are you watching for to understand how healthy this country is after what we've been through and what kind of interventions people might need that they hadn't thought about in their lives before. 
I like to say we all have mental health, just like we all have health. I mean, who doesn't have days where they're anxious or feeling down and they don't want to get out of bed? Whenever I give talks, I always say to people, like, just think for a second. Everybody has been impacted by anxiety or depression at some point in their lives. And everybody knows somebody that's been significantly impacted. And so I think what post-pandemic life is, is showing us is that there are options for everybody, whether it's wellness and resiliency and doing mindfulness. For Neuroflow, we, we measured the engagement on our app. We saw huge spikes in people clicking the find a therapist button and um, seeking help during the pandemic. In one vein, it's sad that a lot of people are needing that support. In another vein, it's really good to see that people are engaging and getting that support when they need it. So I, you know, I like to see that trend continue. Chris Malaro, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Naomi. Appreciate it. Welcome back. What we're watching today is a new report from the Journal of Clinical Infectious Diseases, which found that cases of COVID-19 were present in five states far earlier than previously thought. Evidence from blood samples taken between January 2nd, 2020 and March 18th, 2020, shows that COVID-19 was detected in Mississippi, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Illinois, and Massachusetts in that time, but with virtually no testing available then, this wasn't known until now. This follows another study, which recently found that COVID-19 was circulating in New York a month earlier than previously thought. What this all means is that COVID-19 was present in the U.S. earlier than we've realized, and that tells us more about how it might have spread to and among certain communities. Many people have posited, online especially, that they believe they had COVID-19 earlier than it was possible to test for it, before it was seen as a serious threat or presence in the U.S. The research that's accumulating suggests at least some of them might be right. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to producers Dan Bobkoff, Sabina Singani, and Alex Sugiera. Have a great National Megalodon Day. That's the largest shark to ever exist. And we'll be back tomorrow with Dan with another Axios recap.